Welcome to our Painesville Assembly of God podcast. Our desire is to connect people to a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. If this message touches your heart, we'd love to hear about it. Email us at info at or visit PainesvilleAG.com. We pray that this message will be an encouragement to your faith. How are we doing? <laughs> Don't shout me down here, man. I hope that you guys are ready. This morning we have um, a special speaker for us. We have two um, young missionaries. I say young because I'm, I'm getting older now. Got a birthday coming up. Not really excited about it. That's how you can tell I'm not young anymore. But uh, David and Lauren Perdan, missionaries, going to be taking off going to Japan. Correct? Yeah. I like Japanese food. How many of you like Japanese food? We'll hold that attention and come on up and let's introduce and let's hear a good word from these young, vibrant, ready to go folks. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much. Yeah, man. Thank you so much, Pastor. Oh my goodness, church, it is so good to be with you. Well, like Pastor said, my name is David Perdan. This is my much better half, Lauren. And we are your Assemblies of God world missionaries to the never reached in Scuba, Japan. Now, my story begins when God decided to call a, how should I put this, a terrified uh, curly-headed kid who grew up in the middle of Amish country by Chardon to travel at least part-time into the heart of the Buddhist world, where I was dynamically called into missions. But I got to be honest with you, I also developed some rather unfortunate conclusions about missions and ministry in Asia in general. You see, it is, it's not every day that we... <laughs> My goodness. Good. See, as we go there, it's really, really difficult to reach people in the Buddhist world. You see, it can take the better part of a decade of relationship building with someone before they even entertain a life-changing conversation about the gospel. As you might imagine, often the cost of following Jesus is so much greater for our friends in the Buddhist world than it is for us here at home. But you see, my senior year in college, I took a trip, and I met someone that God used to actually change my perspective on this issue. Who knows that we serve a God that is so much bigger than any problem we could possibly face, right? You see, I met a man called Eam. Now, when I met Eam, I actually assumed that he was a leader in the indigenous church where I was serving. But actually, I come to find out that, no, no, he just heard Jesus's name preached the first time, just two or three months before I met him. And get this, in that short period of time, he came to know the Lord, his wife came to know the Lord, his parents came to know the Lord, his twin daughters came to know the Lord, and I had the privilege of attending this beautiful family's baptism and watch as they started openly evangelizing in the street side cafe that they ran together. I had never seen such radical, quick transformation in the Buddhist world before. The question is, what made Eam so different? Well, he was deaf. He couldn't hear. And when I had the opportunity of asking his two hearing daughters, they spoke pretty good English, you know, I asked them, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I'll never forget this as long as I live. They looked at me almost like I was stupid. And they said, well... We need to be Bible teachers because there's no one to teach our parents. 
It was in that moment I felt the Holy Spirit dart me and say, this isn't just an issue, this is your issue. Now, unlike my wife, who I'm sure by now you've noticed signing next to me, this was a completely new experience. But who here knows that God loves the lost so much he will use even us if he has to. Well, I want to talk to you for a moment about how we believe God has called us to apply this revelation to the second most unreached nation on planet Earth after North Korea, the nation of Japan. Wow, that might surprise some of you. Isn't Japan so, so modern, even so Western in some ways? Well, it is. But you see, Japan has the second lowest number of Christians. It is less than 1% Christian. And the average church size is just 10 people. So congratulations in this early morning service. We are in a Japanese megachurch. The sad news is the church in Japan is quite literally shrinking. But Lauren and I have the unique privilege to have joined a church planting team in the city of Scuba, Japan. Now get this, from our town of Scuba into the heart of Tokyo, there's a train line called the Scuba Express, which runs through the most densely populated urban area on planet Earth. We're talking over 30 million people in the greater Tokyo area and its suburbs. And our team has a bold vision, but our God is bigger, to see a church planted along all 20 stops of the Tokyo Scuba Expressway. That's not all. We didn't even realize until we felt the Lord's confirmation to join this hearing church planting team that not just a university for the deaf, but the only university for the deaf in all of Japan is just five minutes down the road from our very first church plant in scuba. We hope to see, as we're working alongside our, this team and we're church planting, we want to see the first fully indigenous, culturally deaf Japanese church planted among the never reached. Lauren? Well, thank you, David. Um, well, my story is that I grew up in deaf culture um, here in Ohio. My grandparents are both deaf on my mother's side and were saved at an Assemblies of God deaf church just south of here in Akron, Ohio. And as many of you may know, the deaf here in the States and all around the world tend to be ostracized or left out of society simply because of the language and cultural barriers that exist. But that's even more so in a Buddhist country in a context like Japan, where because of the Buddhist belief, there's also this assumption of, oh, you were born deaf where you were born different, that means you did something wrong in a past life and there's added shame. But at the same time, that opens the door for us to come in with the gospel, for us to tell them in their own language about a God who loves them, who made them, and who wants to see them represented before the throne of God, as it says in Revelation 7-9. So that's what we're called to do, to help reach the over 250,000 deaf Japanese, but to also help reach their hearing friends and family members, just like my family was reached by someone who shared the gospel with my deaf grandparents. So I want to thank you, church, so much for having us out this morning. Thank you so much for your part. And we deeply appreciate it. I'm going to pass the mic off again to David in just a minute to bring the word. Um, but I wanted to let you guys know we do have a table out in the back in the lobby with some more information about our ministry. We have our prayer cards. We would love to have you guys grab one of these, put them on your fridge and your Bible, just to remember to pray for the deaf in Japan, for us as we're continuing to travel, and um, for our team as we have this God-sized dream of planting 20 churches. So thank you so much, church, again. And arigato gozaimasu. Thank you, Lauren. 
I do apologize. My voice cut out there for a minute. You see, we actually just got back from serving at Ohio's youth camp for the last week. We had the privilege of attending them, and actually we got to see a couple students called into not just missions, but deaf ministry as well while we were here. We are so excited. That is something we are passionate about. It's something we have been praying about. And it's so good to be here. Well, here's the thing. I think probably only Lauren in this room knows me well enough to know how ironic it is that I am the one up here as a missionary giving a mission sermon. And the reason I say that is because, well, who here knows the term hindsight is twenty twenty? <laughs> okay, I know like, I look like I'm about 12 years old up here, but I promise you I'm just old enough to be able to look back and see the seeds of a call to missions that God placed on my life from a young age. Well, why do I say that? Because I grew up in church, and I remember how excited I would get whenever a missionary would come to share. It blew my mind as a kid, still does, that, that they would tell these amazing stories of all these things that my God, the same God that I read about, that I prayed to, that I sang songs to, were doing these amazing things all around the world in places I'd never heard about. But at the same time, as soon as they picked up that microphone, I would start squirming into my pew seat a little bit because I knew at some point during that message they were going to say that horrible, terrifying, awful, scriptural two-letter word. Does anyone want to guess what that might be? Go. Because, let, let's be honest, there are, there are a lot of things in scripture that I, I thought I knew how to do as hard as they may be, but I also was very glad as a child that there was a secret group of super-Christians that were these amazing Christians that were so good at everything and God picked them to go do scary things like missions. And since I knew that I wasn't one of them, I was really glad that that meant that I didn't have to do anything. Well, what I would actually like to do for a message today is I would like to go back to some basics. I would like to go back to the Great Commission. And I'd like to read it from the lens of my much younger self. And I'd like to take a look at some of the things that, as a kid, maybe I actually got right. Maybe some things I didn't get quite right enough. So today, we are going to be reading from Matthew 28. I'll be reading from 16 to about verse 20. Let's read. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. Now when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, to the very end of the age. Jesus, you are so good to us. Father, you are so good to us that you have invited us to be a part of something so much more impossibly big than anything we could do with our own lives. Jesus, you choose us. You have redeemed us. Bless your word into our hearts as we go throughout our day. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Now, who here also knows that when you're reading your Bible or really doing just about anything in life, context matters? Has anyone here ever had something you've said get taken out of context before? And you're like, that wasn't what I meant. Or at the very least, that wasn't the heart of what I meant. Now, Let's take a little bit of a look at our main cast of characters here. Who is he talking to? He's talking to the 
11 disciples, the 11 remaining disciples. Now, I don't know about you guys, but speaking of super Christians, I tend to get a little starstruck, if you will, sometimes when reading my New Testament. Why is that? Well, I'm a missionary, so of course I think it's, I'm legally obligated to have the book of Acts be my favorite book of the Bible. Why is that? Because it's when you hear all the cool stories of these amazing men and women of God doing things. I mean, preachers love picking on poor Peter, but we know the end of Peter's story, don't we? We know that by the end of his ministry, he is so infilled with the power of the living God, living on mission and purpose, so much so that just his shadow as he walks through the streets is healing people. That sounds like quite an anointing and a level of super Christian that I might not always relate to. But I think in light of that, we tend to forget exactly who Jesus is talking to right now at this point in time. So before we continue, let's have a little bit of a reintroduction to Jesus's disciples. See, right now, at this point, we have four teenagers who work part-time at their dad's convenience store. That would be the fishermen, Andrew, Peter, James, and John. We have a washed-up IRS agent in Matthew, the tax collector. And when I get to heaven, I still want to figure out how this relationship played out on earth. Because picture this, you have the washed-up IRS agent standing right next to the urban Antifa protester in Simon the Zealot. I think a much better description of who Jesus is giving the Great Commission to at this moment are a bunch of scared teenagers. Not exactly heroes of the faith. Scared teenagers, mind you, who've done just about everything wrong up until this very moment. And now I don't care what age you are in this room, scared anything is a label that I'm a little closer to relating to than hero of the faith. And then there's this other part, in the mountain in Galilee where Jesus had told them to go. Now, I had a professor in college give me a little bit of a weird challenge. He said, David, I want you to do something. I want you to read through your Gospels again. I want you to take a highlighter of a different color, and I want you to highlight everywhere in your Bible where you see the word Galilee. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm a kind of terrible student because I barely made it through the book of Matthew before I was sick and tired of the word Galilee. Why is that? Because if you do this, you'll find that it's on almost every page of your Bible. And they went across the Sea of Galilee, and they traveled throughout the region of Galilee, and they they performed miracles on the coasts of Galilee. And you come to realize that in really only three years of actual ministry, our creator, incarnate, in flesh, in only three years of ministry, spent almost all of it in this region called Galilee. And so, must be pretty important. Who here believes that our God is strategic in what he does? I do. He started the greatest movement on earth. He's made everything. And so, what's really important about Galilee? Well, I'm here to tell you today that the most important thing about Galilee is that there is nothing important about Galilee. You see, Galilee wasn't exactly the up-and-coming urban metropolis of the near ancient world. No, no, that would be Rome. No, no, it wasn't even the religious center of of Judaism. No, no, that would have been Jerusalem, a place where Jesus, as far as we know, during that three years, barely spent a couple weeks. And don't we find it interesting that out of any time, any place, anywhere, our savior could have come, he spent all of his time in the middle of nowhere with a bunch of scared teenagers in the margins. 
Now, let's take a little pause at this part of the message. Maybe you, sitting here this morning, feel like you, at some point in your life, feel like you live a little bit in a Galilee yourself. You feel like you're in the margins. Maybe not literally, but maybe it's something as simple as you feel like you're on the outskirts of a social group. A family dynamic, perhaps. A a work culture. Maybe it's something as simple as you don't seem to have the time, talent, or treasure that is deemed valuable by much of the rest of the world. Well, if so, you're in luck. Because you are exactly the kinds of people that our Savior chose to spend his time with. You see, I have to believe that there is a spiritual component to our own recognition that we need something higher than ourselves, that God can use as a good soil, as a good fertilizer for what he wants to do in our lives. Wasn't it the rich young ruler who already had everything that walked away sad because of what he couldn't bring himself to part with? But who has everything to gain and very little to lose? The scared teenagers, not the wise. Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1, 27 through 29, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things, and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. And then there's this other part of this passage that blows my mind. Verse 17, it tells us that when they saw him, they worshipped him. Duh, he's standing there in resurrected form. But some doubted. I cannot believe that our God let us get to see this, that he preserved this in scripture for us to read. Ladies and gentlemen, we are not talking about the masses. We are not talking about that ambiguous crowd that kind of ebbed and flowed and changed their opinion on Jesus every five minutes. No, no, these are his chosen 11 core disciples. And up until after his resurrection, he's standing there in his glory, and scripture tells us that even in that moment, some doubted. This is something that teenage David did not understand. It's that your doubts do not disqualify you from being considered a disciple of Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't think that disqualified them. I'll say it again. Your doubts do not disqualify you from being considered a disciple of Jesus Christ. But there's a flip side to that. That also means that your doubts do not disqualify you from the responsibility of fulfilling his great commission. Because he didn't think it disqualified them. Let's move on. After this, the first thing he really says to them, Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, I find it really interesting that this is how Jesus chooses to start. He looks at his obviously petrified disciples, and he says, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, pop quiz, who here remembers Genesis when God made everything? God made everything and it was good. He made the birds of the air, the beasts of the field, and it was good. He made, he made land and it was good. He made man and it was good. Man is alone. That's not good. I can only imagine what Adam got himself into for a couple years by himself. All right, we gave him one. All right, now that's good. And after all that, 
We also know that he made us in his image. And what that means is he gave us an extension of his authority over the rest of the world. It's something we were created as human beings to have. Has anyone here ever had one of those days where it just seems like nothing can go right, no matter what you do? Just every little thing, it's like a domino effect of just, why can't everything go right? And you're right. Printers are like a swear word in my own household. I used to work in an office, oh my goodness. Now, the reason is, why do we have that? It's because we were made to be a bearer of an extension of God's authority over creation. But who here, unfortunately, knows the end of that Genesis story? We didn't hang on to that for very long, did we? Why is that? Because when we sinned, when mankind bit that apple, what we were basically saying was, hey, God, what you've made and defined as good as, that's, that's cool and all, but I want to decide for myself what's good and what's not good. I'm not going to play by your rules anymore. And when sin entered the world, if you go back to Genesis and you reread the curse that God places over humankind, really that is God just reading our mail of the consequences of us needing to live a life on earth, but having lost the authority that we were made to have. God tells us, hey, listen guys, you're still going to need to have kids, but without my authority, it's going to hurt. You're still going to need to work the ground to toil and feed yourselves, but without my authority, it's going to produce thorns. And for the rest of human history, we have set on a course of humans struggling, vying for the control that we innately know we should have, but despite all the wealth, despite all the power, nothing we seem to have can ever fill that void. Why? Because all authority in heaven and on earth is found where? In Christ. And I am here to tell you as a witness that if you feel like your life is out of control, if you feel like you just can't get a grip on, on something in your life, on anything in your life maybe, I will tell you that there is no amount of money that you can have. There is no position you can have. There is no acceptance. There is no, no identification that you could possibly find on this earth that will fill that void. And why is that? Because it's all found in him. There is no other source of authority that exists other than in Jesus Christ. But he starts with this. Because then, of course, he gets into the meat and potatoes of everything that happens here. He looks at all of them and he says, here it is. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Now, here's the thing. The irony is, is after all of that, as the missionary who is going to a scary foreign country, I would actually love to stand up here and tell you missions and going is the most important centerpiece of this story. But here is the reality, my friends. If Lauren and I go to Japan, but when we go, we are not making disciples of Jesus Christ. Friends, that is called a vacation. If I stand up here and I teach, but when I teach, I am not making disciples of Jesus Christ. That's called a lecture. 
And if I baptize, but when I baptize, I'm not making disciples of Jesus Christ, that's just called a youth group water fight. I don't know what we're doing at that point. The Great Commission, as it stands, of course, yes, do not misunderstand me. Going is important. Teaching is important. Baptizing is important. These are all critical moments. These are critical elements of what discipling is. But the Great Commission, as it stands for every believer in this room, is simply to make disciples. Well, then that begs the question, all right, so what's a disciple? Well, I'm so glad you asked. See, here's the thing. Who here has ever only really heard the word disciple in a church context or reading the Bible? Okay, we don't hear it a lot, especially in the West here, um, because for us, we don't use it in really any other context other than when we're talking about the Bible and Jesus and his disciples. But I promise you that they would have had a very specific example. An immediate image would have come to their head when Jesus looked at them and said, hey, I need you to go make disciples. See, they probably would have thought of a bunch of these robed kids in Jerusalem, all stuffy, all elbowing each other and bickering with each other to see who gets to walk first behind their rabbi, their teacher, their master. Why was that? Because it was considered an honor to walk so close behind your teacher that you would get physically covered in the dust of their shoes. Well, that sounds weird. Why is that? Because if you were a disciple of someone, if you were a follower of a master, that meant you wanted to eat whatever they were eating. You wanted to say whatever they were saying. You wanted to go wherever they were going. Because as a disciple, you kind of wanted to get good enough that you could do that yourself one day. So what I'll say a disciple is, is simply this. A disciple is one who learns to do what the master does. That's it. A disciple is one who learns to do what the master does. So the million dollar question is this. What did our master do for us? See, what these disciples, what had just happened, even days before this, these, these disciples had just watched their master knowingly wash the feet of a man who would lead him to his unjust death. They watched him tried in a sham of a trial and put to death for a crime he didn't commit. And though, yes, he is standing in front of them in full resurrected glory with all the love our creator can muster, he's looking at them in the eye and he's saying, your turn. Go and make disciples of all nations. I think the Apostle Paul summarizes it brilliantly in Philippians 2, 5 through 8, where he writes, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as our master, Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself Nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now, earlier, we talked about how I believe every one of us has a part of our lives, a part of our history, a part of our story where we've felt marginalized. We've felt on the edge. We've recognized, God, I do not have it today. <laughs> I need something else outside of my life. I need to seek something else outside of myself or I'm not going to make it. But on the flip side, I also think that every one of us has another part of our heart that I'm going to call the authority zone. 
It's the place that we really love to retreat to whenever we are tired, whenever we are hurt, whenever we are scared. It's the place of our hearts, of our inner beings, that really just loves to assure ourselves that we are right, that we do have it all together, that we do have the authority about this. I'll give you a perfect example of how this plays out, okay? For me, the irony is, is that at this current stage of my own personal walk with God, going to Japan is actually the easy part. But Lord Almighty, when I see someone I disagree with post on Facebook, who would you take the wheel? And really quickly, I feel my heart latching onto that part that really knows what's right. Well, if only they knew, if they just knew that, and if they knew it. And before I knew it, I am using not the authority of my master. I am really quickly using my own authority. Because here's the thing, talking about missions, there was actually a group during Jesus' time that was doing missions, that knew their scripture, that was doing it amazingly. This group called the Pharisees. You see, they had everything figured out. They had their ducks in the row. They were assuring themselves, no, this is exactly what it is. And Jesus has something very interesting to say about the Pharisees and their authority. He tells us in Matthew 23:15, "Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are." What's the difference? What is the difference between these two things? Whose authority? Am I using when I try to act in obedience? Because here's the thing. This group of disciples, remember earlier I said they didn't do anything right? Peter's cutting off ears of people like days ago and then immediately denied Christ. All right? Cussed out a little girl while doing it. Thomas isn't making eye contact with anyone. All right? Andrew just wants to go home. Like they are a hot mess. Nothing has changed in their lives from the Garden of Gethsemane to now. And yet with all the confidence in the world, our Savior and Creator is looking at them and saying, go do what I did, guys. Go make disciples of all nations. What has changed? Because my friends, it is not your abilities. It is not who you are. It is not your heart that qualifies you for the call. You are called and it is His Authority, it is his power working through us for his purpose that enables us to do that. It is not by digging down in ourselves and just trying to do harder. I believe that striving is important. I believe that that is, that is what we need to be doing. But my friends, it is through getting closer to the one who has the authority, who has done it. That is the only way that we are able to act in obedience and do what he's asking us to do. As I get ready to close, I'm going to end with this analogy, if you'll indulge me. Going in that theme of teenagers, because that seems to be going on, let's say that I'm a teen guy who just accomplished his first teen rite of passage. The first junker car. That's right. And two for one, driver's license in the same summer. Now, when I bought this thing, it is a junker. I mean... I didn't even get it off of a proper dealership. I got it through Facebook Marketplace, right? And after all that, after all that, my dad's trying to be supportive, and he's like, is this the one you want? Yes. All right, dad, this is the one I want. And to his credit, he gets the thing home. And he spends the rest of his summer out not 
not out playing video games, not even shut in doing anything. He is working on this thing, and he restores it. I want you to picture after all of this blood, sweat, and tears, he gets it back into pretty tip-top shape. And I want you to picture after all this work, he takes not his keys, not the deed to his new car. No, no, he takes the six bags of trash out of the back seat. He takes the dirty mop bucket of water, the rusted out muffler that he pried out. He takes all that in his arms, kicks in his mom's front porch, slops it all on the kitchen table, and says, Mom, Dad, look at what I bought. Now I stand up here as testimony before all of you that because of my Savior's blood and my Savior's blood alone, my sins will not be counted against me on the day of reckoning. I am made righteous because of his deeds and his actions alone. But do not make this mistake, my friends. Jesus did not die to buy your sins. He bought you. Jesus did not buy our sins. He bought us. And we have access to healing. We have access. I am also still being put together piece by piece. But we are given his power, his restoration for his purpose. Now for Lauren and I, obedience looks like going to Japan. But for everyone, the destination is not Japan. But for everyone in this room, the destination is to be and to make disciples. Let's pray. Jesus, you are so good to us. Lord, you are so good to us that no matter what, you enable us to do what you have asked us to do. Thank you so much, Jesus, that when there are days that there are people that David Perdan does not want to love, you will be able to love that person through me. That Jesus, when there are places that I do not want to go, you will love those people through us. You will take us there by your spirit and your spirit alone. Father, I ask that as we leave this place, I invite your Holy Spirit to rest on our hearts. Jesus, as we go from this place, may your spirit challenge us to do what you did, even when it's hard. That you might receive the glory of every nation because of your spirit that is at work at us, giving us the strength to do what we can't. Like toddlers helping out their father, we have no idea what we're doing, but we just want to help. Jesus, you could have done the Great Commission anyway, but out of your grace and your love, you choose us. God, it is a privilege that we thank you for. Lord, give us your strength. Give us your mercy. And help us to be obedient to make disciples, even when it's hard. We love you, Jesus. And in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. We pray that you're encouraged by this message. For more information about Painesville Assembly of God, visit PainesvilleAG.com.